Hello, and welcome to the Houston Experiment, a music podcast. My name is Greg Houston. I am a composer and founder of the Houston Experiment Concert Series, which is a series of music concerts held in New York City and streamed online for all to see. This podcast is for anyone who either loves music, works in the industry, or is curious in learning about music genres they may not be familiar with. If you would like to support the show, please go to www.patreon.com slash Houston Experiment and sign up as a sponsor. If you love the show, please take a moment and rate or review the Houston Experiment on Apple Podcasts. Each rating and review will help people find the show, which will be greatly appreciated. Hello, and welcome to episode four of the Houston Experiment. Today's guest, once again, will be Professor Alexandra Lewis from Brooklyn College. This is going to be part two of the conversation that we were having about Maurice Ravel's many attempts at trying to win the Prix de Rome. And this this conversation really helped shed a light for me, especially when I first took Professor Lewis's class, that you know, winning a competition doesn't exactly guarantee a very strong and successful career. And as you will hear in this podcast, that will pretty much confirm and cement that belief. And, um, you know, Ravel never did win the Prix de Rome, but as many of you know, he went on to become one of the most influential composers of the 20th century. So that really hit home talking to Professor Lewis and especially taking her class all those years ago at Brooklyn College. So let's get into part two of the podcast, and I hope you all enjoy. So let's move to 1903. Ravel again applies for the Prix de Rome, and this time he applies with his fugue in E minor and another cantata that he wrote. Ravel did not win the Prix de Rome this year and for the reason because this also coincides with him not winning a prize in four ways harmony class which he was kicked out of which eventually I believe led him to leave the conservatoire for good I think he in in 1903 that he got kicked out because he submitted um the first movement of his string quartet, I, if I'm, I believe, um, and yeah, he was expelled in 1903. Ravel was expelled for the last time when he submitted the first movement of the string quartet. Oh, yeah, that would get him expelled. And Dubois proclaimed it lacked simplicity <laughs> oh man that is too much <laughs> why do i get the feeling that dubois really didn't like Ravel all that much no they didn't have it early on they they butted heads and they had a very um yeah friction between them but you see this is a great example of what happens in history over and over again that the person that is that that causes a controversy or becomes an obstacle 
in the path of success for somebody that's truly deserving is then remembered by history as an idiot and a jerk. So, so Dubois' reputation <laughs> is that of, you know, what an, yeah. But, but I won't, right? So, um, yeah, so that's how Dubois is remembered. And of course, he had to resign, or he resigned. He said he was going to be retiring anyway, of course. But, um, you know, he, he, had to, he had to step down. So we're moving to 1904, and this is the year that Ravel did not apply for the Prix de Rome. And also during this year was the premiere of his string quartet, which was controversial in the sense that it was panned by critics and faculty alike, including our friend, Mr. Dubois, who said that it lacked simplicity. Foray also chimed in and said that the last movement was too short. Now. I listened to the Ravel's quartet the other day, and in my opinion, I feel that the last movement he said everything that he needed to say, in all honesty. And when I was taught composition, one of the main things that I was taught was that when you're writing a piece, if you feel that you have said everything that you wanted to say, whether it be a 30-minute piece, a five-minute piece, or a two-second piece, that you should basically stop. Stop. Right, just stop, yeah. Yeah, and audience members, listen to the entire Ravel String Quartet and decide for yourself that if A, Dubois is correct in that the piece lacks simplicity, and B, if Foray is correct, if the last movement is indeed too short. You know, decide for yourself. So on the other hand, okay, so Ravel always had his detractors. And there were those people that were fans, and then he had, you know, certain critics and, and his detractors. On the other hand, his good friend, Florence Schmidt, who also won the, the Prix de Rome in one of those years, he, he told Ravel, don't pay attention to what anyone says, because Debussy approved of it and was very supportive and thought it was a very a masterpiece. And Schmidt tells Ravel, that's all that matters. You got, you got Debussy's endorsement on that one. And that should be, that's, that's all that matters. I would think that coming from Debussy, if you got a compliment from Debussy, that spoke volumes because he wasn't that complimentary to his fellow composers. Right. So, we are now at 1905, and this is where it gets good. So, Maurice Ravel applies for the Prix de Rome for the last time in 1905. And the pressure is on. Oh, is the pressure on. So, everything is riding on this. And... For the listeners who really don't really understand the Prix de Rome, winning the Prix de Rome at this time in France culture is the equivalent of like the Boston Red Sox and the Chicago Cubs going through that long drought and trying to win a World Series. Or for you golf enthusiasts, Greg Norman trying to win a major tournament. This is what it's like. And Winning the Prix de Rome really establishes you as the next big thing. 
So there's a lot of pressure on Ravel. And I think not only the pressure to win, but the shadow of Debussy looms over Ravel this year. Right. Yeah. And okay, so we have the pressure is Ravel's pride, number one. And that's the word, that's the biggest factor right there. The parents. All right, let's not forget he was very close to his family, especially his mother, who he adored. The money is another issue. And his teacher, Foray. I mean, how many times is he going to disappoint Foray? And if Foray wanted a winner, he want, you know, you want, if you are a composition teacher, you want your students to thrive and be successful. And it's kind of absurd that Ravel hasn't won the Prix de Rome. It's, you know, it's ridiculous. So lots of, lots of pressure. And yes, the press, because the press, again, he had his detractors, he had his, his fans, and, um, this would be a way for Ravel to shut them up. Right? Shut them up. Right. So in 1905, Ravel, shockingly did not even get out of the preliminary <laughs> round. <laughs> I mean, this is stunning. And right. so the piece that Ravel submitted actually to Prita Rome standards wasn't that bad. The controversy was the fact that eight students, I believe, all just happened to be or eight finalists just all happened to be students of one person who was judging. Six, six finalists, right, that one judge and composer. Yes, he was judge, jury judge, and composition teacher of six of the finalists. And there were not very many finalists. I mean, I think they usually narrowed it down to about six or seven finalists. So do you want to tell, because I know you mentioned this in your paper, do you want to mention why he didn't make it? Like, what did he do wrong? Oh, please share this with us. The parallel octaves, right? Yep. Seven, seven measures, consecutive measures of parallel octaves between the soprano and the bass. Oh, that's a cardinal, <laughs> cardinal no, no. And, and in the fugue, I think it was, he that was in the choral piece. And the fugue ends with a major seventh chord. Oh, man. <laughs> Yeah, that's going to resolve good during that time. <laughs> you know, what's really funny. I, you know, I, I know there are probably like modern composers listening to this and they're probably saying right now, so Ravel ended in a major seventh chord. So what? No big deal. So what's wrong with that? Right? <laughs> yeah. So, but just keep in mind, people who are listening to this, this is 1905 Paris Conservatoire. Extremely. Oh, yes. Yeah, very conservative, you know, by the book. So let me just read another juicy passage that, or an entertaining passage here. So in later years, um, there, the, uh, let's see, where do I start this one? He's telling, Ravel had a different explanation for this debacle, telling Manuel Rosenthal, who was one of his friends and a biographer, that Sanson was presiding over the jury that year with Ravel's chorus in front of him. And he remarked to his eminent colleagues, don't you see that this young man is making fun of us? 
look at that passage. It's and he, again, this composer Ravel was um, parroting these these composers. So he's goes on and says he's thumbing his nose at the lot of us, and he's certainly not going to get the Prix de Rome. And Rosenthal remembered that Ravel admired Sanson and was really rather pr- proud that Sanson had spotted his jokey. Insolence. Oh man, that is so precious. <laughs> Absolutely. So he, you know, he was going out of his way to make fools of them, and you know, they probably Sanson was probably the only one that got it. <laughs> yeah, and he was a pretty intelligent guy, so I'm pretty sure that he knew that Ravel was mocking them. But here's the thing. So, and I kind of. And still stumped by this, you know, and yeah, and I left it unanswered on my paper, right? But I wanted to ask why Ravel did it, and Ravel knew the whole world, or at least all of France, was watching him under a tight microscope. He had his detractors, he had his critics, and so forth. He had the ghost of well, Debussy was still alive at this time, but. Debussy's shadow was hanging over him. He knew this was his last chance and he could not screw it up. Why did Ravel do it? Because he has shown, especially in 1901, that he can do this. He can do... He could do it. Yeah, he could have... There was no reason why he couldn't have aced it. Yeah. If he wanted to. Yeah. Yeah. So he knew he could do it. So the question is is why Ravel didn't swallow his pride and just do what he was told to do. Well, there's another theory then. So here's, and see how you like this one. So Roger Nichols ends this chapter, which is entitled, by the way, Testing the Establishment. And this is covering the years in his biography, 1902 to 1905. So... Possibly, there remains one possibility in the affair that has never been considered because the evidence has not been available, namely the fatal crash of this invention that his father, his father was an inventor, and he invented this car that apparently could do, I don't know if it was supposed to be like a flying car, but it could do somersaults. It was called the um, the whirlwind of death. That's what the invention was called. And what happened was, in one of the trials, the driver, the test driver, got killed. Yeah, so that was a big, not only tragedy, but had a devastating effect on the family right? Crushing blow. So, given the effect on the Ravel family, could Maurice seriously envision leaving Paris for at least two years? That is, abandoning his mother, whom he adored most in the world. He was extremely close to his mother. To cope alone with a traumatized husband and son, both of whom on that Easter Monday 
in April were appearing before the, um, I guess they had to appear before some sort of a, a legal um, uh, panel, and quite possibly trying to head off the charge of criminal, invest, uh, criminal negligence, simply withdrawing. So it, the, tr the family was in a little bit of trouble, right? And in a very vulnerable position. So simply withdrawing his entry would inevitably, inevitably have drawn accusations of musical cowardice. Did he then deliberately throw the competition? If so, it was obviously something he could never confide to anyone. But whatever the truth, he must have taken comfort in the fact that his actions influenced Foray's appointment. Because after he failed, Foray, Dubois stepped down and Foray took over. Right? And at that, in the years that followed, Foray, now nicknamed Robespierre, began to turn the venerable conservatoire upside down. So there was a French Revolution, basically, inside the conservatoire. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Thanks to, to Ravel's loss and the big scandal that it set off. And even Ravel's critics came to his, uh, came to his side and to, to his defense that nasty Pierre Lalo, I know you mentioned him in your, in your paper, he was always very critical and wrote some very nasty things about Ravel. Even he, let me read to you, I have, um, An excerpt from that letter. Um, I have often spoken about him, this is Lalo talking about Ravel, and almost always with a mixture of criticism and praise, the criticism having a particular severity. It is, and he was the one that was always comparing Ravel and Debussy and saying that Ravel was, you know, kind of a copycat. It is precisely because Maurice Ravel has unusual qualities that I grant him his shortcomings. I hope that he corrects them. Nevertheless, were he to correct nothing at all, he would be a musician, a genuine musician, and one of the leaders of his generation. And another one of uh, the quotes that I read, and I think this kind of sums it up, in the conservatoire, they taught you the rules, but they didn't teach you anything about being an artist. Yeah, and that was the problem with a lot of music schools, at least when I went. You know, I don't know if they're still doing this now, but they teach you, you know, how to write music. But at the same time, and this is what really affects you when you graduate, they don't teach you entrepreneurship and how really to market yourself when you're out. But Conservatoire, they weren't interested in somebody, in, in recognizing that someone was on their way to be an artist. They were only interested that they could follow those academic rules. So all well, this thing was just an academic exercise, and creativity was not factored in, which is kind of absurd, I think. Yeah, you know, the analysis about the whole criminal negligence theory really does make a lot of sense. Yeah, he probably didn't want to win it because he didn't want to leave home. He was so tied to his mother's apron strings. 
it's it, it's kind of pathetic. And well, yes and no, I don't know. But you know, I, when I went to his house, it was really interesting because you know his piano. He had a special music room, and the piano is in the by the window, and then straight across from where the piano is a portrait of his mother. So when he was sitting at the piano, he would look up and he was looking at his mother all the time. Picture of his mother. Yeah, you know, my original opinion was wanting to ask Ravel, what the heck are you doing? Because, you know, if I was in Ravel's shoes, you know, I would have the mindset of this is your last chance of applying for the Prix de Rome. Do not screw this up. You know, you're not going to have another chance. But after listening to that section in the book that you read about Ravel basically throwing the 1905 competition, it makes a lot more sense now because with Ravel's family situation, they would have to fend for themselves. And honestly, Ravel would be helpless to help them. Kind of make a lot of sense. Yeah, and amazingly, this coincides with a huge scandal that is happening at the Paris Conservatoire. And mind you, this was a national scandal, correct? It was. Yeah. Yeah. It was. Yeah, and it makes more sense now that Ravel would do this because if he didn't theoretically tank it and he just withdrew, people would be asking questions about, well, why did Ravel not? win the Prix de Rome this year. Edward, he was afraid he wasn't going to win again. And yeah. So Ravel and Heisset was in a no-win situation. He was between a rock and a hard place, as they say. But how did it affect his career? It didn't. It probably, you know, it made him more of a national, uh, he was gotten more national recognition and uh, established himself more firmly as a colleague and the next, the the next leader of the French, you know, composition uh, world. Deb, there was Debussy, and Ravel was going to take over. It didn't hurt his career at all. And in hindsight, this goes back to the overall question about. Ravel's participation at the Conservatoire and the Prix de Rome. And if you compare Ravel to the people who did win the Prix de Rome, who we will talk about in a few minutes, they needed name recognition to be heard in the composition world. Ravel already had that. So, and I know he Ravel had perfectionist mentalities, but in hindsight, he didn't really need the Prix de Rome or to really stay at the conservatoire as long as he did. Yeah, he didn't need it. All right. And he didn't, I don't, it didn't seem like he needed to be taught anything more. Although, you know, it's interesting that um, he must have felt indebted to his teacher because all those early works were dedicated to 4A. Jado is dedicated to 4A. The String Quartet is dedicated to 4A. Uh, I'm not sure about Scheherazade, if that was dedicated to 4A or not, but he was very fond of, of his teacher and felt a debt of gratitude to him. So, 
Yeah. So do you think it was more like a loyalty thing that might explain why he stayed on as long as he did? I I don't know. I really don't know. Like, for example, you know, Foray opened up a lot of doors for Ravel and helped, you know, establish himself as a composer. So Ravel might have felt obligated to repay Foray with winning the Prix de Rome as, as in a way as a thank you. It would have been wonderful had he won. And then, you know, Foray would have been able to bask in the glory of, well, you know, my student, my illustrious student, uh, won this prize and i think that was that was a very telling and interesting uh excerpt that letter that ravel wrote about how foray was so dismissive and almost condemned the fact that his this other guy won and didn't deserve it and it was his student it was his own student yeah you know it's it's just amazing like how this whole entire they just went down so for the final part of our podcast and this is what all of you have been like waiting in anticipation to listen to is what happened to the winners of the pre the years that Ravel applied to the pre Rome. and basically to sum it up very quickly was absolutely 100% nothing um, one of the winners, Andre Henri Cable, who I believe lived until 1925, he was the I believe the first winner of the Prix de Rome. In 1900, you mean in 1900? Yeah, yeah, he was the winner in 1900. He went on to conduct the Boston Opera Company here in the United States. Um, that's what he was more known for. Um, another winner, um, I believe it was the year after, was Gabriel Dupont. He unfortunately died right before World War I happened. It, so he really didn't have a chance to really make a name of himself in the composition world. Um, he died very young. And in hindsight, reading about DuPont and doing research on him while doing this paper, I found that he was probably the closest in line to really matching Maurice Ravel as far as popularity goes. Um, he had a lot of talent, and it was really sad that he wasn't able to live long enough to really see that. So he was another one. Um, and... The most famous one out of them all, I believe, and who lived the longest, um, if I'm correct, was Schmidt. And with Schmidt, he was the kind most, of... Yeah, Florence Schmidt, yeah. Yeah, Florence Schmidt. He was, um, like I said, he lived the longest out of all the composers, but he was probably the most controversial early on in his career. He had a pretty good musical output, and he got a lot of performances, what ended his career pretty much was, well, he aligned himself pretty much with... Oh, he became a German sympathizer. Yeah, he became a German and Nazi sympathizer. And I also think that he worked for the Vichy government at some point. So after World War II, he was pretty much villainized uh, for his associations with those groups. But 
the point of this is in for people who apply for composition competitions, this proves that winning a prize will not guarantee you a very successful career as a composer. Amen. Yeah. And and in instrumental competitions as well. You know, the winners very often you know, I attend, I've attended a number of piano competitions and I don't remember the names of those people. You know, they were good enough to win, but very often it's the ones that didn't win who had something extra special that was outside the box, so to speak. The ones who were, you know, they were not middle of the road. They had... Uh, a more they were unconventional in one way or another okay so this is what the situation that we have here this pre derome thing you had to as you put it you know walk the company line you had to stay in your musical street jacket you had to be conservative you had to bend to the conventions right and same thing with with piano competitions, for example, which is what I would be most familiar with. I'm not so familiar with competition, composition competitions. But the pianists who are the least conventional are eliminated, and very often that causes a scandal. Uh, famous jurors on the panels will storm off in, and resign in protest, and that will launch the person's career. And those are the names that you remember. Those are the ones that go on. And I can, you know, mention a, we're not here for that, but, you know, I, a couple of pianists, really fine pianists come to mind, who were, became famous because they didn't win the competition. But they had something that was very special that, again, can't be taught, and they're not the middle-of-the-road mainstream. They don't do anything that offends anybody. Um, and that's kind of what, yeah, I guess you have to do in order to win a competition. So just a question that I have, and this is a side topic. In piano competitions, does the controversy start with how a pianist interprets, like, a piece? Like, so, for example... If a pianist interprets a Beethoven sonata in a weird way, would that start the controversy more or less? Yeah, it's all in the interpretation. Yeah, right. It you know I have a lot of Beethoven sonata recordings. Some of them are good, some of them are bad. And me being a Glenn Gould fan, I just know for a fact Glenn Gould would never have won. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean it's it's the truth. He wouldn't have won and you know i like glenn gould and all but it's just yeah i love glenn gould but yeah i know what you mean yeah it just wouldn't have happened like his well-tempered clavier recordings the one in c major the first one where he uses those staccatos i can just see that would be an absolute head scratcher <laughs> with the judges and he probably unfortunately probably wouldn't have gotten far with that no no so to wrap this up, and this is a question that I kind of sort of asked you in the very beginning, and this was a conversation that I had at length at the previous podcast with composer Alex Shapiro, is, well, in a nutshell, after all we talked about with Maurice Ravel and the Prix de Rome, in your opinion, 
and this is just your opinion. Do you think having music composition these days is even viable? That's a very good question. Uh, it would be good, I think. You know, that... Uh, well, one. let me just interject this. We forgot to mention for the listeners that there no longer is a Prix de Rome and that they abolished it in 1968. And that was probably around the time of the student uprisings and all the riots in, that were taking place in, in Paris and, you know, in other parts of Europe and also in this country as well. In the, in the 60s, around that time, there were a lot of student uprisings. So the Prix de Rome was, was abolished at that point. And probably that was a good thing to happen. You know, I recently came, made the acquaintance of a very fine pianist who plays the competition route. And he's about, I feel sorry for him because with the pandemic, his career has been put on hold and he's about to turn 30. So he came very close to winning. He's an excellent, he's a fantastic pianist. And um, he's at the Grad Center now. He's finishing his DMA. He studies with Richard Good at the Grad Center. And I had him as a guest in my um, seminar last March, right before we shut down the college because of the pandemic. And he spoke to my class about doing competitions. And I think... Um, it is for, for some of them, the hope is that you, if you do get the prize, it gives you the vehicle to be able to perform and you get a record contract and you do get some money and it is a, it can be a launch pad and it's, it's something, you know, it, it, it is something to work with. And, uh, you know, there have been a few, in piano, there have been a few competition winners of later years that, you know, they deserve to win. They, they won that Clyburn competition is, is a wonderful thing for the pianists. Uh, but it doesn't, unfortunately, it doesn't lead to a successful career, but it does put them out there so that they're in circulation. And they attract a lot of public attention. It's very prestigious to say that you're a Van Cliburn winner, um, but it usually doesn't materialize into a, a sustainable career. You know, and that's kind of sad. It's very sad. You hang all your hopes on it, you know, and then and if you are lucky enough to win. You would think that having climbed that really high peak and gotten to the top, then, you know, that should count for something, but mostly it doesn't. Yeah, and that's the problem with composition competitions these days. And, you know, it doesn't really guarantee you really anything if you win. And I have known people who have won competitions in the past, and 
mind you, these are these were very big competitions that they won, and they really went nowhere. And if they applied for like you know another competition, a different one, their piece might not get through the preliminary round. So it just really makes you wonder if it's even worth it to have these or just promote yourself more as an entrepreneur. And let's not forget to mention that, you know, these things are very political, unfortunately. Oh, oh and definitely. very corrupt very often, too. Yeah, it, I was a victim myself of that type of competition where I submitted a piece and there was a power struggle between two sides and one side liked it and the other side didn't. And it was a dumpster fire. And the person that is really caught in the middle of that power struggle is you. And you honestly have to deal with the brunt of it as a person in the middle. Yeah. Yeah, it's terrible. Yeah. And honestly, there is no right or wrong answer. You know, one side will support having competitions and another side won't. And I don't even know even if they're could be a change i don't even know how or how that would be implemented to be honest but i guess just talking about it will maybe create something different in the future who knows but um but that's a topic for another day for another day but in the end professor lewis i would like to thank you so much for taking part in this podcast it was so great in talking to you about Maurice Ravel. It is such a great topic, and there's so much more about him that we can talk about later. Oh, and the fascinating topic. And yeah. Fascinating. Yes. Yeah, it is a great topic. And oh, by the way, the last Ravel class, I just wanted to say this the food was just absolutely incredible. Oh. <laughs> I mean, it was amazing. We had some wine too, right? Yeah, we had some wine and it was just like French foods and man, that was a great, great last class. Well, as I told you, what we do now is we have a concert. So oh. that yeah, we did the concert. And I will make sure that um I invite you to the concert. Oh, I will right. definitely go. So I thank you once again. I'll talk to you soon. You're very welcome. And that concludes my conversation with Professor Alexandra Lewis about Maurice Ravel's many attempts at trying to win the Prix de Rome. Next week, I am going to be having composer Kevin Scott on board, and we are going to be talking very much in depth about the struggles, trials, and tribulations of trying to make it as an African-American composer. So this is going to be a very enlightening conversation, and I can't wait to share it all with you. Once again, if you would like to hear Kevin's podcast earlier, you can sign up as a member for my Patreon page, www.patreon.com slash experiment. And not only will you get access to podcasts earlier, but you will also have a chance to listen to my music and previous Houston Experiment concerts because a lot of people have been asking me about sharing my music. So I am sharing my music, and if you want to hear it, become a member. So until next time, I will see you soon. And that concludes this week's podcast. Remember, if you're interested in becoming a sponsor for the Houston Experiment, 
please visit www.patreon.com slash Houston Experiment and become a member. If you like the show, please leave a like or review the Houston Experiment on Apple Podcasts. Each like or review will help people find the Houston Experiment podcast, which would greatly be appreciated.